a long time ago and uh, far, far away, I uh, used to play the guitar a lot. I, I don't much anymore. And one of the things that I did when I played a lot of guitar is I would try to write songs devotionally. They were never very good, but uh, they worked for me, and it was a devotional practice anyway. And I wrote a song years ago about Palm Sunday. And my wife liked the song because love is blind. And <laughs> so I asked Diane if uh, she would do a favor for me this week. And she said, yes, if you would sing the Palm Sunday song on Sunday. <laughs> so since uh, I was doing this, I, I decided that I would. And I did not at the 9 o'clock service because I get out of this any time that I can. But uh, Diane is in this service. So... <laughs> because her love is clearly conditional. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you to sing the chorus with me. And the chorus goes like this. Hosanna be to the one who is forever the same. Blessed is he who comes in the Lord's name. Try that with me. Hosanna be to the one who is forever the same. Blessed is he who comes in the Lord's name. One more time, Hosanna. Hosanna be to the one who is forever the same. Blessed is he who comes in the Lord's name. pretty amazing. <laughs> All right, so here, here are the verses. Outside the city gates, a small crowd is gathering. They bring up a donkey for the man to ride on. Everyone singing and shouting his praises. Hail to Son. The small crowd is growing, it looks like a coronation. Somebody cries out, tell me who is this man? This man is Jesus, the one that you've heard about. Come, join the band. Okay, choir. Be the one who is forever the same. Blessed is he who comes in the Lord's name. Hosanna. Hosanna be. Jerusalem, go tell the people that Messiah is coming, as your prophets foretold. See your king comes to you, just like you heard about a long time ago. 
to Jerusalem, go tell the people that Messiah is coming. He is gentle and wise. He enters the city surrounded by followers and Hosanna's rise. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the Lord's name. Hush cried the Pharisees, be still, you fools. This man's a charlatan, he breaks all the rules. But Jesus commands them to quit their complaining and let his disciples proceed. For if they don't do it, the rocks will see to it, and from them my praises will ring. Hosanna be to the one who is forever the same. Blessed is he who comes in the Lord's name. Obviously, today is Palm Sunday, so happy Palm Sunday, and it's great to have you. If you're visiting with us, thanks so much for coming. The Palm Sunday story, as we'll find out today, reminds us of one of the most fundamental truths about our spiritual lives, and we can't make progress unless we get this. Now, you're going to have to make your own application today, because our intention today is to lay truth on one another. But it is a profound, mind-blowing bone-rattling truth, and the truth that we're going to talk about today is just the beginning of the spiritual life for us, and at every point when we feel like we're falling away or we're getting dusty or dry, this is what drives us back. This is how we get reconnected. So I'm going to start by reading the Palm Sunday story, and for the first part of this, you can remain seated. When we get to the very end, I'm going to ask you to go old school, and we'll stand out of reverence for God's Word. But we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 29 through 44. And I understand from the 9 o'clock service that uh, I put a different translation uh, into the screen than I read this morning. So I'm going to read from the screen. So I'm going to read Luke 19, 29 through 44. I'd love for you to look along. It's on mygateway.life. Or if you have a Bible, please open up to Luke chapter 19. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. So this is probably written for people who are not 
native Jerusalemites because he would have said normally the Mount of Olives, but he says the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples saying, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, and uh, some of you will remember, Diane and I had the opportunity, thank you, Gateway, to go to Israel a couple of months ago, and we were in Jerusalem, and you know, I was surprised, I told you the week we got back, I was surprised at the hilliness of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built on a series of hills, three, I think, and one of those hills, the smallest, is the, the Mount of Olives. It's an olive grove at the top, and in the middle there's an olive press, uh, that is the Garden of Gethsemane, and it goes down, literally, to the Kidron Valley, and then it goes back up again to the entrance into Jerusalem and to the Temple Mount. When he came to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for the, all the miracles they had seen. Probably what's happening here is, this is Passover time, and in the high holy traveling holidays, the festival holidays, tens of thousands of people would descend on Jerusalem for the uh, celebrations and they would come from all over Judea, and there were many who had come from Galilee. Some of those had been people who had sort of gathered around Jesus, but all of the people who would have been from Galilee would have been people who had heard him or heard of him, and the Galilean crowd is probably gathered kind of spontaneously in this area outside of Jerusalem, and now they, they see the parade, and they begin to join in, and what happens is a spontaneous fulfillment of what we uh, read in Zephaniah earlier. It, this is like exactly the picture. If you had drawn it up, this is the picture of what it would have looked like had the Messiah come into Jerusalem, and they are enacting it, almost unawares. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Interesting, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord is the thing from Psalm 118, the Hallel it's called, that would have been sung when Messiah comes into Jerusalem. This was kind of a standard greeting during the festival holidays, when pilgrims would come to the Jerusalem area, when they would come into Jerusalem, the Jerusalemites would greet them by saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke adds something here that the other accounts don't add. And I wonder where this came from, because Luke got much of his account from eyewitnesses and a lot of it from Paul, perhaps some of it from Peter. But what Luke says here is a variation from Psalm 118, and it's a variation from the other accounts, Matthew's, Mark's, and John's, Luke says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. I think Luke can't help himself, either that or he's like my wife, Diane, he, who always gets the words wrong in songs. She's always adding words into songs, and this is what Luke does here. Okay, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Okay, let's stand out of reverence for God's word. Let's go old school. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, here's, here's our punchline, this section. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. 
The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You may be seated. Someone sent me an article this week that started with a story that's a great introduction to our topic this morning. Uh, Listen to what this woman says. I gave a toast at my best friend's wedding last summer, a speech I carefully crafted and practiced delivering repeatedly, and it went well. The bride and groom beamed, the guests paid attention and reacted in the right spots. A waiter gave me a thumbs up. I was relieved and pleased with myself until months later when I saw the cold, hard video documentation of the event. (laughs) As I watched myself getting ready to make the toast, a funny thing happened. I got butterflies in my stomach all over again. I was nervous for myself, even though I knew the outcome would be just fine. Except maybe the jitters were warranted because the triumph of that speech in my mind's eye morphed into the much duller reality unfolding in front of me on the TV screen. My body language was awkward. My voice was grating. My facial expressions odd. My timing was not quite right. Is this how people saw me? It's a terrifying thought. What if I possess a glaring flaw that everyone notices but me? Or, fears aside, what if there are a few curious chasms between how I view myself and how others view me? For instance, what if I think I'm efficient, but I'm seen as disorganized? I'm seen as critical, but I perceive myself as accepting. I know just how this woman feels. And I'm sure we've all known people who don't get it. They don't know how to read themselves at all, and they don't know how to read the environment around them. We've also probably all wondered if there were times when we were that person. Emotional blindness can be devastating to our work, to our relationships, to our emotional health. We've seen it. We've seen it in our families. We've seen it at work. We've seen it in our marriages, some of us. But far worse than emotional blindness is spiritual blindness. Far worse and far more difficult to recognize. By its very nature, it doesn't see itself, right? But spiritual blindness is something we have to understand if we're going to approach God. It's so critically important. For one thing, the consequences of spiritual blindness are devastating. It leads to the ruin of our whole lives and our eternal destiny. Plus, spiritual blindness is the enemy of personal growth. Spiritual blindness is the enemy of personal growth. At one point, in frustration, Jesus makes exactly this point. He says to a crowd, This people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. We don't make progress in personal growth. We don't get healed. We don't make progress in any of the ways that matter most when we are spiritually blind. It's clear from the Palm Sunday story that the religious leaders around Jesus were spiritually blind. In fact, this is just the latest of many episodes between Jesus and these leaders that demonstrated this. They rejected his ministry, they were offended at his claim to be the Son of God, and they felt mostly contempt for Jesus' uncouth followers. In short, the religious leaders didn't believe Jesus, they didn't understand him, they didn't get it, their hearing was dull, their eyes were closed, they were spiritually blind. But before we throw too much shade at these guys, let's remember their disdain and their rejection is kind of understandable. Jesus' claims are extraordinary, to say the least, and the stuff that happened around him throughout his ministry is, I mean, it's remarkable, but there are just times when it's odd. 
Nothing about him was as they would have expected it to be if he really was the long-expected Messiah. And they had studied this stuff extensively. These guys had PhDs in the Old Testament law. Many of them had dedicated their lives to studying this stuff. They had categories and analysis and centuries-old ways of thinking about the activity of God. So I think it's pretty easy to be gracious toward them. Let's face it. It's hard for anyone to believe the claims of God. And being a firsthand witness might have made it harder, not easier. And yet, Jesus believed that these guys should have known better. Remember in verse 42, he says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And the even you there is an intensifier. In other words, you guys, especially you guys, should have known and been able to add up the signs. You should have seen this rightly. You should be at the head of this parade that's going on right now. And yet, they were spiritually blind. And for Jesus, this is a point of profound sadness because he knows the result of spiritual blindness. Remember, we said spiritual blindness results in ruin. And I want you to listen to Jesus' description in verses 43 and 44. I don't have it on the screen, but I want you to listen to this, and then I'm going to tell you about it. He said to them, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. In 68 A.D., 35 years after Jesus, Roman legions acting under the command of General Titus surrounded the city of Jerusalem and began to slowly squeeze the life out of it, eventually building a barricade up to the city wall itself. In 70 AD, they breached the Jerusalem outer walls and they began systematically ransacking the city and destroying the temple itself. In the process, they slaughtered thousands of Jews and of those who were spared from death, Thousands more were enslaved and sent to toil in mines in Egypt, and many, many others were dispersed to arenas throughout the empire to be butchered for the amusement of the public. It was utter destruction. When Diane and I were in Jerusalem, we saw that they've dug down and found the road that went along the outer wall of what was at that time the city of Jerusalem. And those of you who go to Jerusalem with us next year, you'll see this. And you can see the the wall at this time and the temple itself were built under Herod, and Herod crafted each of the stones. First of all, the stones they used were gigantic, and he had crafted each of the stones very carefully. It was kind of marked. It's almost as if he wrote an H on them. They know which stones were were Herod stones and which stones belonged to the wall during the, the reign of Herod. And boatloads of those stones are just lying around, and they've crushed the road. That was the original road that ran along the edge of the wall. In fact, there's nothing left of the wall, the gigantic wall. There's nothing left except a small section that you now know of as the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. Everything else was utterly destroyed. Spiritual blindness leads to ruin in your marriage, at work, in your family. And Jesus knew that it was coming. Let's apply this to our lives. We've been reading through the New Testament as a church, and those of you who have kept up with our devotional readings this past week, we read this section of Luke's biography. We read chapters 18, 19, and 20 of Luke, and I was struck by something this week. I don't think I've ever seen this before. 
a couple of stories before this account, before the time when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and this heartbreaking observation from Jesus that follows. In chapter 18, this was in 19, in chapter 18, Luke talks about Jesus' encounter with a, a guy that, if you know these stories, you may know of as the rich young ruler. Some of you know this story. He, he was a deeply religious young guy who was also wealthy and influential. He's from Northern Virginia. And he comes to Jesus and he asks him, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus ultimately, don't miss this, Jesus ultimately lets the young man know that his whole lifestyle, especially his commitment to his immense resources, his whole lifestyle is holding him back. In other words, what this young man perceives as a blessing is actually a spiritual and emotional anchor holding him down. So then Jesus says, sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And the young man walks away disappointed and confused. I mean, who in the world would follow that advice? And that's sad, really, but then Luke gives us the disciples' reaction. And the disciples are also confused. They also see the man's life and his resources as a blessing from God. Do you see how they're missing it here? Then right after this exchange, this is awesome, I've never seen this before. Right after this exchange, Jesus tells the disciples exactly what's going to happen to him when he goes into Jerusalem. He will be betrayed and killed, but he will rise from the dead after three days. Again, he tells them this flat out, very plainly. And then Luke records this telling commentary that I've never noticed before. Luke says, but they understood none of these things. In other words, the entire environment around Jesus, meaning everyone, including the disciples, was at least partially blind. Remember all the cheers and worship that greeted Jesus on the way into Jerusalem? Within a week, those had turned to jeers and curses. Nobody is really getting it here. Now, you could argue that these are two very different crowds involved. People singing Psalm 118, waving palm branches on the entry day. They're almost certainly not the same people that were yelling and screaming in front of Pilate, crucify him, and that's true enough. But still, where were the cheerers when Jesus was being stripped and beaten? Where were the palm branches when his life was being auctioned off? Where was Peter on the night of the Inquisition? Where were the other disciples protesting through the religious leaders? Wait, you haven't heard the whole story. They were hiding. And not just because they were afraid for their own lives. They simply didn't get it. We can't escape the consistent impression that the disciples didn't really get it either. They were certainly admirers of Jesus. They were intense admirers even. They knew something was different about him, but they didn't fully see it. Now, I'm not trying to be overly critical here. I understand why they didn't, but we need to remember that they didn't, not even the disciples. Last week, we talked about how Jesus repeatedly rebuked the disciples for their lack of faith. This is just another way of saying they didn't get it. Well, that sets us up, doesn't it? Because if we follow this train of thought to its logical conclusion, this is how the story becomes personal for us. It's critical for us to understand that this not getting itness is the natural human state. It's critical for us to understand that this is our default setting. We don't get it. Not really. 
It's not just those terrible, self-righteous, high and mighty religious leaders, but the earnest disciples, those who've left everything to follow Jesus. They don't get it either, at least not for a while. And neither do we, at least not for a while. John, in his biography, we're looking at Luke. John, in his biography, he begins his entire biography of Jesus, not with the story of Jesus' birth, but he begins with this beautiful, epic poem where he lays out who Jesus is. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 of John, John says this, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. The Apostle Paul is less poetic. He exhorts some of his readers and us with this. This comes from Ephesians 4. Listen to this. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility, in the purposelessness, in the blindness of your minds. Did you catch that? In other words, Paul is saying, you used to be clueless just like everybody else. You used to not get it. Don't be like that any longer. He goes on. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. This is the default setting for all of us in all of our spiritualness. And by the way, surveys too many to number will tell us that almost all Americans think that they are profoundly spiritual. In all of our spiritualness, in, in all of our cleverness, in all of our education, given all of our experience with the world, all that we've learned, we still don't get it. We don't get what's most essential anyway. We are spiritually blind. That's the default setting. And our spiritual understanding begins with that realization. And as I said, every time we drift, we move back by recognizing, wait, I'm one whose default setting is not getting it this. All right, that inescapable fact begs three questions based on the fact that we don't get it. Number one, how did we get this way? In other words, why are we spiritually blind? Two, how do we get over it? How do we get over our spiritual blindness? Three, what is it that we see when our eyes are opened? Okay, so let's take the first one. How did we get this way? Why are we spiritually blind? Turns out this is complicated. There are at least three factors involved, and I'll just list these. We won't talk about them, but I'll list them. Number one, there are indications that God himself sometimes blinds us. The Old Testament prophet Zephaniah, for example, and there are many examples, speaking for God says this, quote, I will bring distress on mankind so they will walk like the blind. God sometimes causes us to be blind, usually as a judgment against our disregard of him. Secondly, there are even clearer indications that our spiritual enemy, the devil, blinds us. Paul acknowledges this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But third, and most importantly, without question, the main reason for our spiritual blindness is that we choose it. Jesus put it like this. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. In other words, we don't want people to know what's really going on with us, in us. We don't even want to know ourselves. We'd rather live in denial. We'd rather be blind. A couple of years ago, I had someone ask to see me, and they came into my office, 
to talk about the darkness in their life and what was going on. And things were falling apart because of it. Their life was falling apart because of it. And it was partially exposed, but not fully exposed. And they were ashamed and guilty and also mortified and felt terrible about what was happening. And we talked like this for a while. And then I asked a few questions and more description around what's happening. So then at one point I said, well, I think it's brave that you've come. I appreciate you coming. Let's take a look at what's going on. And this person, very honest, and said something very telling, I think. They said, I don't think I can. And they never did. We choose to be blind. Paul, of course, is less poetic in the way he puts it. He says this, Romans 1, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth. They didn't lose it. They didn't miss it. They suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So we have no excuse. We are blind because we choose not to see. Imagine if we suddenly discovered that everyone who was physically blind was blind because they were choosing it. That would be revolutionary news. Did you know that 70% of the adult American population that's blind is unemployed? Think of how it could change lives if they knew they could just tomorrow choose to see. And spiritual blindness is far more devastating than physical blindness. It really is. It prevents us from making progress in all the ways that are most important in our lives, and it leads to ruin. And still we choose it. It's our default setting. Second question. So how do we get over spiritual blindness? How do we not choose it? If this is the default setting, what do we do to reset this default? Turns out this answer is pretty simple. But it's also humbling And it's frankly difficult to accept. So I submit this to you and encourage you to stew on this. Here it is. The key to our spiritual sightedness is revelation from God. If we're going to see, God must open our eyes and show us. Let me explain. At one point in his ministry, Jesus asked his disciples who the crowd believes he is. So who do they think I am? They give him a variety of answers. And then, pointedly, Jesus looks at the disciples. He says, what about you? And Peter responds. And Peter says, well, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And pretty quickly, we realize this is one of the most get-it moments in the entire Jesus journey. And to this response, Jesus says this, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, But my Father who is in heaven has revealed this. In other words, you didn't come up with that on your own, Peter. God showed that one to you. At another point, after Jesus saw his disciples effectively ministering to a crowd, the disciples overheard Jesus praying this. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The Apostle Paul, at one point in one of his letters, he's commenting on our knowing truth about God. And he said this in 1 Corinthians, 
These things, the, thing, the mysteries, the stuff that we know about God, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. In the next paragraph, he says, the natural person, it's the person whose, whose eyes have not been opened, let's say. The natural person does not accept the things of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Here's the bottom line. We overcome spiritual blindness when God reveals himself to us. We see what God shows us. That's why we say on Sunday mornings here at Gateway regularly, you're not here by accident because we don't believe that you're here because you stumbled in. Hey, let's go to that church, a neat building on the corner of Gumstring Tall Cedars Parkway. We believe God arranged the circumstances for you to be here. And if you're going to connect with us, we believe you're here for a very specific purpose that we're excited about finding out with you. Look, if we think we can go off on our own and change our spiritual vision, we might as well ask our computer to change its default settings without our intervention. You and I are powerless to accomplish this. That's why when Paul talks about, don't miss this, when Paul talks about who we are apart from God's intervention in our lives, he calls us dead people. We're not sleeping. We're not curious and just haven't yet stumbled onto the right solution. We're dead. And dead people don't arouse themselves to life. This is one of the things that's so disturbing to me about the current trend in America away from church. Have you seen the latest data that came out this week, I think? There's a new category in the, over the last 10 years. It's been growing rapidly. There's, it's called the nuns. Uh, not N-U-N-S. You, all, all of you former Catholics or current Catholics breathe a sigh of relief. But it's the those who no longer have any religious affiliation. And the nuns are now roughly equal in uh, American demographics to Catholics and to those who claim to be evangelical. And look, I get how thorny churches are and how sometimes out-of-touch church people like me can be, but we're all in danger when we begin to think that we can go off by ourselves and discover how to see. Our default setting is spiritual blindness. We don't get it. And we don't get what we don't get, and until we get that we haven't even begun to get it, we haven't started. You and I are powerless. But we aren't without responsibility. We can't give ourselves vision, but we have to be involved in the process. As God moves around us and within us, and he does, he's doing so this morning. We must say yes. With our heart and our choices, we have to agree. We have to lean in to what God is doing and not resist. We've got to accept God's movement. We've got to make it a priority. We've got to agree. But make no mistake, God is the one who brings us from darkness into light, which is exactly why Peter put it that way later in his life. Spiritual vision happens for us because of revelation. All right. So what do we see when our eyes are opened? What does God reveal to us? Number one, we see that God is in control. We're not. We'll see that God is director, creator, executor, sustainer of all things. We are not. And the universe, including us, was made to praise and acknowledge this truth. That's why Jesus said, if I try to stop them, the stones will cry out. The second thing is we'll see that things do not happen randomly. They happen by design. 
This is why Jesus repeatedly told them what was going to happen. The whole Palm Sunday story is like a drama in elaborate detail, fulfilling Old Testament expectations. Everything is happening by design. And thirdly, we'll see Jesus. We'll understand that in Jesus, God visited our planet. And then we'll see that we killed him. And we'll also see that this too was by design. His death was in our stead for our sake. Some of you know the story of the blind man. It was John 9. And there's a, a blind guy and Jesus encounters him and heals him. You can see. And then Jesus scurries away and he doesn't get, you know, he doesn't get a, a card. He doesn't get his cell phone. He has no idea who this is. So the religious leaders grab this guy later and they want to know who healed him. And they're building a case against Jesus. They know it was Jesus, but, you know, they, they need some evidence. So they drag him in. Who healed you? He says, I don't know. What do you mean? You don't, who did it? I don't, I don't know who he was. It was awesome, but I don't, I don't have any idea. Fooey on you. So they go get his parents. His parents are awful, in my opinion. They come in and, is this your son? Yes. Was he blind? Yeah. Can he now see? Looks like it. How did this happen? What, what, who did this? We don't know. Ask him. And they exit stage left. So they go back to the guy, ask him another series of questions. And finally, he says that profound thing that has become the testimony of tens of thousands of people over the last 2,000 years. He says, I don't know. What I know is once I was blind and now I can see. That was the testimony of John Newton. If you don't know that name, you should. John Newton ran slave trading ships, taking African lives out of Africa and bringing them to the Americas in chains to be sold as human cattle. And during the years that he was running slaves back and forth from Africa to the Americas, he began to become familiar with the songs and the the dirges of these African peoples. And he used one of those to write the most famous English language hymn ever written. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Let's pray. Lord, some of us this morning have drifted and we are restored the default settings. And we need to acknowledge this morning that we don't get it that we're blind and we're out wandering around getting ourselves into trouble because we're making decisions in blindness. Digging ourselves deeper and deeper in. And Father, others of us have never had our eyes opened. I ask this morning in Jesus' name that you would show yourself. And whatever you've done in us, we pray that you would seal it. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray, amen.
Okay, so uh, we have the opportunity this morning to join the parade. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you would. Our little ones are going to come in this morning waving palms. If your little one walks by you, please don't grab them. Let them go ahead and, and finish their train all the way around. This is really neat. We're going to sing a song. They're going to be too scared to sing. They're out in the hallway yelling, and as soon as the doors open, they look like deer in headlights. So uh, encourage them as they go by. Uh, Nate, get us started here if you would. But Jonathan, bring up Hosanna. All right, choir, let's give them a good entrance. Peace.